Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week, can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is probably sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. I see their founder at least twice a day and have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas and could use the help, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give 100% guarantee on their services via a 30-day money-back guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say that today I'm interviewing my friend and client, BJ Meyer, who is the current CIO at Higginbotham. Hey, Topping. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show, bud. I appreciate it. My pleasure and honor. So, got to tell me, how did you first get your role at Higginbotham? Uh well, Higginbotham, um, I, I was looking for a change and uh, um, was simply doing online searches and found um, found an opportunity. The company uh, wasn't listed. It was a third-party recruiter, had posted it online, right? And so I'm reading through the, the description of the job. And there are a couple of things that, that sounded familiar. Um, Higginbotham is an insurance company. We're a brokerage. Uh, we're one of the top 20 uh, brokerage agencies in the U.S. Um, and, and so they're, they're in the insurance space, right? So I saw this listing for a Fort Worth-based insurance company. And there's only so many of those, right? And uh, I actually had um, a, a buddy of mine who uh, was in a senior role at Higginbotham. So I gave him a call, and I'm like, hey, are you guys looking for a CIO? And he said, yeah, but how do you know that? We haven't told anybody. I'm like, well, I, I can read you know, <laughs> deductive <laughs> reasonings. You know, it's yeah. kind of what I do, right, figuring things out. Um, and so uh, I asked, you know, hey, can, do you know the hiring manager? And uh, it was a chief people officer, and he's like, yeah, his office is two doors down from mine. You know, let me go, uh, l- let me go give him your resume. And uh, uh, to their credit, and this is a kind of company that Higginbotham is, they could have, um, they were using a third-party search firm. Mm-hmm. I bypassed them, right, and went yeah. direct to, to Higginbotham. And they could have sol- saved a significant amount of money direct hiring me. But they said, you know, that's not fair. It's not fair to the other candidates because now there's a financial incentive to hire this guy. And so the chief uh, people officer, he decided, hey, we're going to send send BJ through the, the normal interview process with the third-party consulting firm um, just to keep the, the, plane, the, the playing field level. Um, so that was cool, and that's that's really awesome that that's the kind of company with integrity Higginbotham is. Um, yes. You know, I was disappointed because I felt like I, I lost some of my advantage, but <laughs> it, it worked out for me in the end. So, you know, it's one of those things that everybody talks about how important 
networking is and career development, and it really was, because what I found out afterwards is they had basically stopped um, looking at new candidates, and I slid in after the fact um, because of, of a relationship that I'd had, and that wasn't even a pure business relationship. Um, I, I the, the individual I knew, Ross Carmichael, I knew from one of my hobbies, and uh, he and I had, had we're, we're both car guys and yeah. worked together for years um, so did on car stuff. So yeah. did you work on cars together or did you build um, them together? So I, I actually, um, so I, I have a, a secondary business, an automotive business, and he was a customer there. Uh, and then he's also, we, we've horse traded a little bit. We're, we're both BMW guys and, and uh I think he, he bought a, a shell that I had that he was using for spare parts for his race car. And then uh, he also had bought a, an old 7 Series that, that I was daily driving that uh, his dad, when, he was, when Ross was a kid, his dad had the same car. And so it was his first experience with uh, a BMW was a car like this. And so he thought it would be cool to own one. So he bought that one from me. So, you know, both personal and, and, you know, hobby stuff. Yeah, we knew each other in a lot of ways, but that's, you know, you find that especially as you get more and more senior in your career, that those relationships um, make a huge difference. And it's not just business relationships, you know, it's your personal relationships, hobby, church, whatever, you know, organizations, uh, 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 philanthropic. Yeah. Philanthropic. I I can't pronounce things for the life of me. Yeah. So, (laughs) Um, what, you know, they all have, have impact and can help you out. And that's, that's a case where, where it did. So, so but were you tricking out the cars for him or were you getting them to race spec or? Yeah. So, um, I quite honestly, I don't remember how much work we might've done on, on Ross's cars. Uh, if it was minor setup, that was, we're, we're talking nearly 10 years ago, probably oh, wow. the last <laughs> time I touched one of his cars. So I, I don't really recall because I think a, a lot of his work he has done in, in Fort Worth uh, with Texas Track Works, which mm-hmm. those guys are good friends of ours as well. And But uh, but uh, we, we veered off of, of Higginbotham there. But uh, um, yeah, so uh, started at Higginbotham. Um, uh, obviously, the the interview process went well. I was going to say, you and got I, it. <laughs> you know, and it's about five years ago I started with Higginbotham, and it's been a, a really great ride. So Higginbotham, um, you know, we're a large agency, um, and we're growing like crazy. Yeah. And uh, they were really um, – their, their growth had been taking off for a while when I joined, but it was really gaining critical mass, and they were having trouble um, – keeping their technology offerings, uh, supporting the business, and being able to scale with the business. And so that's really what they were looking to do um, or why they were bringing in a a CIO at that time um, to really help their scalability. And since I've I've joined Higginbotham over the last five years, we, let's see, by the end of this year, we'll be... um, close to tripling in size and tripling in revenues. Um, when I joined, we were um, just in Texas. I guess we had one office in, 
Oklahoma, and now we're in 15, 17 states, coast to coast. Um, and it's, so it's a dramatically different company. And so it, it's been exciting because I've gotten to reinvent IT at the same time we're keeping up with all this growth growth and we grow both organically and through acquisition and so there's lots of M&A and conversions and integrations and things like that and so it's been very challenging um, but very rewarding as well and and quite exciting. I mean insurance doesn't sound like the most exciting uh, industry in the world but it, it really is. I mean insurance and financial services has become one of the um, largest contributors to um, the U.S. GDP. In fact, we're becoming a financial services country. And so this was a tremendous opportunity for me to be in one of the, the most uh, uh, impactful industries um, in, in our country. And who doesn't want to be in, in the, you know, the biggest industry, right? If you're, you're in corporate or enterprise IT, supporting the businesses that are growing and doing the best um, has a lot of advantages. And, and I found that to be very true at Higginbotham. Oh, it's so much more exciting too, when you're working to help propel a company and adapt and, and just Ab make, absolutely. It, make it so that when you acquire this company, just copy paste, because you got all the standards in place, everything's working seamlessly. And a lot of people don't know the oldest business in history is financial based. I think it's, I want to say is in, based in Japan, but they're one of the, oldest companies in history. Yeah, and insurance uh, is some of the first contracts ever yeah. um, ever created. I mean, insurance is a product that goes back a long time. It, and uh, especially back in the, um, when uh, so much of your trading, it was all maritime stuff, right? And, yeah. and you had these people that, it used to be moving cargo across in a ship across the sea or ocean was was a huge risk right and a lot of the owner operators that that had these these ships they couldn't afford it if they lost their cargo and so they started um th this idea of insurance um was created where um where they would have wealthy people basically take on that risk for them and they would pay them and they would play the odds. It was, uh, and you know, cover that that risk. That way, he didn't lose their entire fleet of ships if if one went down with some cargo. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was goes back to some of the earliest er, uh, insurance transactions. But yeah, it's something that's been around a, a long time. It's kind of a necessary evil, right? I Absolutely. Mean, nobody loves paying their insurance premiums, no. but. <laughs> But you like when they work for you. Oh, right? absolutely. And, it's um, you know, I, um, so it, it's, it's something we can't live without. Nobody loves, but, you know, it, from a, an industry to be in perspective, I mean, it, it's a great place for me as well. I mean, it's one of the things that was attractive about this after spending uh, some time in some more startup cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, Higginbotham was great because their growth and how much they're growing and changing feels very startup-like. But you're talking yeah. about a an organization with an 80-plus year history that that uh, um, in an industry that's very well established and very very stable. Um, you know, you 
businesses always need insurance. And that's one thing I should say. We, we're in the insurance space, but mainly the commercial space. So we don't we do a little bit of personal insurance, but our bread and butter is is business insurance, employee benefits, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's a hard seat to navigate. Kind of pun intended, going back to the maritime analogy. But yeah, a lot of people don't know. Like, if you're a business, you want to find insurance. That's you know easier said than done. There's literally hundreds and thousands of options. That's where you know Higginbotham comes in, helps you navigate. You know what's going to fit your business, what's going to be the best need. Yeah, and and from a technology perspective, it's a good industry to be in. So uh, InsurTech is is a um, fast-growing category. I, and so I, I will admit that insurance has been a little slow to adopt a lot of technology. It's a very conservative um, uh, business category, but they're, they've really embraced technology. So it's an exciting time to be in it as we're really looking at, at how we can better leverage data and analytics and technology and digitize that customer experience and those kinds of things. And so it, it's a great spot to be. I, I couldn't be more thankful to, to, to be with Higginbotham. Absolutely. And I know it's cliche to say, but data is the future. I remember, I think it was 2017 or 18, the first time in history, the most valuable asset on the planet was data, not oil. Yeah. Or gold. That's insane. <laughs> But it makes sense. I mean, it's what drives all of our purchases. It's all about the analytics. You know, what's your Google search history? You know, let's sell that to, to that company and put that ad right in front of your face. And yeah, some, well, I was about to say somehow, but more often than not, it works. Yeah. And it's getting to the point of scary. You know, something that I just heard is, uh, what's the company name? iRobot, I think it is. That is that the company that owns the Roomba yeah. vacuum? So that was just acquired by Amazon. One point was it one point two or one point three billion? A lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of money. I think yeah. it was their second largest acquisition. Right after Ring. Ring was one billion, I think. But it's uh, you know the thing that's that's fascinating about that is just how much data Amazon's collecting, right? So they already they can listen to us. They know what we're watching on TV. They you know they know what we're buying and shopping for, but. They, they get a whole bunch uh, of data from from these Roombas now where they'll know what we have sitting around our house yeah. and what we may need to replace and things like that. And, you know, who knows if they're going to use that data in that way, but oh. it'd be hard not to. I mean, they're very good at selling things to people. They're, they're the best. Been, I mean, yeah. I, I would argue, I mean, you look at historical companies, no one utilizes data better than Amazon. I, I can't imagine just the amount of data you gather from the Roombas or the iRobots. You know their layout. You know where their space. Then you could just start pitching them ideas for maybe furniture that would optimize your experience. I mean, the possibilities for Amazon are literally endless. <laughs> yeah, well, and it depends on how much data they get back because yeah. some of those units have cameras so they could do object recognition. So you'd be able to tell things like, what pet they have, perhaps what pet food they use, you know, and, you know, it, how many kids they have, what toys do their kids like, right? It just, it, it's, it's endless. It's fascinating. But, you know, and that's, that's a big part of why data is, is so valuable is it, it, uh, it, it just helps us do what we've always done and that's sell things to people, yeah. right? I mean, that's the core of, of business. Um, so is, 
these are the kinds of, of discussions where I have very mixed feelings about, right? Because right. Uh, I, I, I like my, my privacy and data security is important. Um, but I, and so in those regards, I'm not a huge fan of this move. Yeah. But <laughs> in a business play, I think, man, gosh, these guys are smart. It, I always, um, I, I always appreciate intelligent business decisions and, and that's, you know, this is up there. It, it's, it just starts to get into some, I guess, moral gray yeah, areas. But, exactly. Mur um, murky waters. Going yeah, back to the merchant yeah. analogy. It's yeah, exactly. They, they know more than your family. Do you ever, I think it was 2009. I, I read an article about um, Target. They had a uh, mom and pop in a, you know, they had the kids at home. And the dad, all of a sudden, they started to get these, you know, the, the Sunday flyers. You know, maybe this is the 90s. And all of a sudden, he said, oh, why? I, you know, we're, you know, we're in our forties. We have our, our kids, our teenagers. Why are we getting advertisements for baby products and accessories? And eventually the dad gets so mad. He calls target and goes, Hey, why are you saying this? I don't need this. I don't want this. And later finds out, Oh yeah, his daughter is pregnant. So wow. target knew more about his daughter than he did. That's astonishing. And that was a decade ago. Yeah. So imagine what they know now. So there's a reason my TV was made in 83 or 84. Sony Trinitron can't listen to me there. Nope. <laughs> Good TV. I had a Trinitron. Yeah, yeah. Every time I think about buying a TV, I always remember my friend, you know, some friend who they bought a TV quote unquote, recently within two or three years and it breaks. It's like, well, that heavy duty lead filled TV from the eighties still works. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I start thinking about products, the more technology you put in, sometimes they inherently seem to get less reliable in some ways. And others, you know, not so much, but uh, maybe manufacturing obsolescence. Yeah, and I think that's it, it. So many of these items have become commodities, right? Yeah. A TV used to be a luxury item. Oh yeah. Now it's a commodity, right? Yeah. And the the prices kind of reflect that. I mean, it. Um, you know, what I can buy a TV for today, they're basically disposable. But I in the eighties, uh, you know early 80s buying a 25-inch TV was a huge investment. I mean, it, in today's money, it, it would be like $5,000 or yeah. more for a 25-inch a, a, uh, like yeah. TV. You know, that's, that's crazy to yeah. think about. But, and, and so I think a lot of that quality goes along with that, right? If when it's not a luxury item, you don't have the same yeah. expectations. Once it's a commodity, yeah. And so there's probably some truth to that, but a lot of that's probably just scale and price point and those yep. kinds of things as well. So it is astonishing. You can get a TV for under eighty bucks if you go to a retail store and just oh yeah. for a small one. And it'll work. I mean, and more often than that they'll work for a couple of years. But I mean if you want to hit that price point and you're, you know, pumping things out in mass quantities you know, something's going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize for the ADHD. What was the question again? <laughs> I don't know. Who asked a question? Yeah. I've, yeah. Got, I've got some on here. So what was the biggest challenge when you first joined Higginbotham? Um, you know, I think uh, the biggest the biggest challenge was just, um, well, it. the biggest challenge was also the biggest opportunity. It was very, very much a greenfield um, situation. So, um, this was a company that was really transitioning from being a, a 
an you know SMB player to a small enterprise. And so they didn't have a lot of experience in IT governance and you know best practices and those kinds of things. So um, it was great because there wa- weren't a bunch of screwed up practices and policies that I had to try to do away with and replace. But I had to do a lot of education of of the the users and even in some cases the staff and. Um, we didn't have a lot of specialization um, within the, the IT team. So there was a lot of, of um, developing skill sets or specialties for the staff to try to bring them along. And, it, you know, that was extremely challenging, but also extremely rewarding. So it, it really was both um, part of the, the, the biggest challenge, but also the the most um, rewarding part to tackle, uh, especially when it comes to the the people development. I've got a phenomenal team at Higginbotham, and I'm I'm proud to say that pretty much everyone um, that that was here when I joined is still with us. We've had great retention. Um, almost all of those um, everyone that was here when I joined is in uh, a new role now, so they've all had growth and changes and that's really exciting and it's exciting to me that that culturally the organization has let me invest in people and and develop people i love organizations that that um, value their employees in that way and will try to retain and develop them Um, you know some people or some companies hate making investments in people because they're worried they're going to lose them yep you know i i feel like if you treat them well and you make investments, and you keep challenging them, that they'll want to stick around. And so far, you know, I, I've, I've been right. So let's hope that strategy keeps working. But uh, if the past is any indicator, I think it will. Well, that's especially impressive when you consider how hyper-competitive DFW is for IT talent right now. Oh, I know. I, I mean, know. When I'm talking to my peers, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things we all talk about. It's our greatest challenge right now is just how do we – you know, hire and retain talent. Yeah. And, it, I was, and it's definitely one of the best things about Higginbotham is the promoting w- from within and reinvesting in people. One of my favorite quotes from someone I admire is Richard Branson. And I might be butchering it, but something along the lines of, you know, treat someone well enough and train them well enough so that they can leave, but then treat them well enough so they don't want to. That is, uh, I, I didn't realize I'd subscribe to, uh, to his school of thought, but I, he could, I, Certainly couldn't put it better. So right, absolutely, yeah. but yeah, kind of going back to Amazon. I mean, they're just gobbling up IT talent left and right with as they just keep keep building out their infrastructure to try to keep up with their astronomical growth and yeah. building data centers all over the U.S. and yeah, well, and they've got a lot of IT hiring here in DFW. So yep. you know, we're directly competing against them for talent, and it's tough, especially because who wouldn't want Amazon stock? It's Basically right. gold. I well, mean, geez it, Louise. You know, <laughs> quite honestly, it's a lot sexier name than Higginbotham. <laughs> you know, nobody knows who Higginbotham is, and insurance isn't very sexy. But but Amazon uh, is is attractive as an IT professional to have in your resume. Um, you know, uh, some of their warehouse workers may not feel the that it, it's the the best place to work. But at the uh, even there, you know, the uh, their 
clients, again, some of the things I, I value about them is they're a phenomenal logistics company. Yeah. Not only are they great in data, but they're one of the best in logistics. I mean, that's long been one of the secrets of Walmart success is how good they are at, at, at logistics. And Amazon's taken that to a whole nother level. And it's, you know, not surprising that they've, they've, uh, um, surpassed Walmart in a, you know, and most retail categories. Well, I do forget it, it is either UPS or, um, FedEx, but they better be doing something because I remember two or three years ago, Amazon said, we're going to start building out our own infrastructure. And that accounted for 11% of either UPS or FedEx's annual revenue. So Amazon now has their own Boeings, their own yeah. fleets, and they are phenomenal. Like, I don't always lose the package, but when I do, it's not the private sector. But, like, yeah, Amazon, their dedication to customer service is astonishing. Just how fast you can reach someone, how fast they can resolve issues. Is, I mean, that's part of the reason they keep growing, I think. And AWS, obviously, is the big 500-pound gorilla like most people don't know about. But the convenience of AWS has just made IT so much easier. Yeah, well, and what a... How amazing was that? You know, that was something that was born out of their own needs to Brilliant. support their own infrastructure. And they're like, you know what? We could productize this and and have have other people help pay for our growing infrastructure. And they've done a brilliant job with it. I mean, and and they they're um, when it it comes to technology around AWS, they're they're pretty top notch. Oh, absolutely, it's. Is astonishing. I, perhaps maybe not so much, but you know the kind of cliche is the best ideas come from external. But none of the server manufacturers who make servers for a living really succeeded in the cloud initiative. I mean, Amazon has the the, bar, the biggest share, then Azure, then Google Cloud. I think is a one, two, three in terms of market cat or market share of cloud services. And I just was surprised so many of them didn't go all in. Like HPE had the HPE Helion from a New York Minute, which was their cloud initiative. But Amazon just keeps building it. And they, they build their own infrastructure. They, I'm sorry, they physically build their own servers, just like Google and Facebook, because they need so many and they can engineer them just that well. Yeah. So it's, it's impressive how they just keep chooching along and growing and growing. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. But kind of going back to the original story, I know it's been a, it's been a couple of years since you and I, since you first got the Topping Technologies clock in the mail. Yeah. So kind of going back to earlier in life, how did you first get into IT? Um. I mean, I was into technology from a young age. Uh, being a, a kid of the the eighties and early nineties, um, you know the. It goes back to pre uh, pre internet days, right? But um, I was always into computers. I had a, uh, I think my first computer uh, I bought used from the local Radio Shack. It was a, a Tandy TRS eighty. On the way, yeah, Color Computer two, and nice. it didn't have didn't have a floppy drive. I think when I bought it, it didn't even have a cassette drive. So. The, the way you would save files on it would, would be on a cassette tape, like an audio cassette tape instead of a floppy disk. It was crazy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but um, so anything I wanted to do with it, I had to type the program in myself. So I had this huge book. Um, 
full of basic programs, right? At basic, um, the language, right? So it would be like 10, you know, clear screen, you know, it, it, it just line numbers. And so I'd have to type thousands of lines of code in to do anything with this. And so I started to, to understand what I was typing and write my own programs. And I was probably about 10. And that's really where it started with me is, is when I start, started to see, hey, I can make something happen. And that developed in, in uh, you know, through my childhood into high school. I, I was a guy, I grew up in a small town in rural Missouri, but everybody came to me for IT support. I set up all the computers for our city hall. For my dad's business, that was a big thing. Uh, How old were you when you were doing that? That's awesome. Uh, not old enough to drive because my <laughs> parents would have to drive me around to, you know, take me to city hall to work on their computers. You know, I was installing, uh, Great Plains Accounting, which I think got acquired by Microsoft at some point, um, for, for my dad's business and, and setting up all the invoicing and things like that. So it started really young and had a bunch of practical experience and, um, started going to surplus auctions and buying equipment when I was in high school, cleaning it up, refurbishing it, and selling it. And that's really how I got my start. And so I knew I wanted to go into computers when I went off to college and uh, got um, um, had a scholarship, went to the University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, great school, great time. Um, but while I was there, I took an internship. And I was working for, I think, think the Department of Biochemistry and uh, was working for their head of IT, um, doing network administration. Um, there, there was this whole new concept of, of intranet sites. And so I was developing the departmental intranet site, which involved a text editor and this stuff called HTML. And I mean, it was before we had a lot of tools, but and, you know, I did that kind of stuff, but, um, and I really enjoyed it. But the, um, the head of IT there looked at me one day and he goes, why are you here? I'm like, <laughs> I'm here because you're paying me, man. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, no. Why are you, why are you at, at the university? I'm like, well, so I can get my degree and get a job. He's like, man, you could be, you could be making bank right now. And I, I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, your skills are, are in demand. And, uh, um, you know, I, I kind of took that to heart. And, um, and plus, I was young and stupid. And I had, I think this was my uh, beginning of my sophomore year in college. Mm -hmm. And so I'm 20 years old. And I, I had just... Um, proposed to my girlfriend at 20, right? So yeah. this this shows my lack of rational decision-making um, at this point. But I'm like, you know, a job sounds good right now. And uh, and I'd be happy to say I did marry her, and yeah. I'm still married to her today. So it worked out okay. I, but I so I decided I was going to leave and go to work in, in IT because we needed money to support ourselves. We wanted to get married, all of that kind of stuff. My fiance at the time thought I was nuts. <laughs> she, I remember her crying thinking that, that we were going to be, you know, homeless. Yeah. Um, and 
she was still in school, and so I couldn't move away right away. And um, so the local market in Columbia, Missouri, was a little tough. Yeah. And uh, ended up, again, networking. A friend of a friend hired me. He have, had an IT consulting business. But I didn't get hired as a tech. I got hired as a, a back office person. I was answering phones and doing billing. Mm -hmm. But... It, it was, I was working for a technology company, yeah. so, you know, it, it, okay, and, uh, you know, I'm only 20 years old, and, um, but what happened was, I, I started answering the phones more and more, and we were getting really busy, and the techs would be out on calls, and so I started fielding um, calls for customers, and I just, the tech wouldn't be available, and I'm like, well, maybe I can help you. And so I'd provide some assistance over the phone and, you know, I kept a log of these and I, I went to the owner of the company after I'd been doing this for a while and showed him my long list of all these issues. And I'm like, Hey, um, so I've, I've worked on all these customer issues. You know, what do you want me to do with these? Should we bill for these or what should we do? And, uh, that day he made me a tech and I got my first paid it job where somebody else was paying me. That's awesome. And uh, had a, a really good first year, um, was mainly working. It was partially commission work, right? Mm -hmm. But my, um, I was one of our top billing consultants, but then quickly moved on from there, got an opportunity to relocate to St. Louis, which was a better market, and move into um, my first real enterprise job. And, uh, you know, and then my career kind of took off from there. So, but uh, again, it kind of, we started off talking about it. I mean, leverage who I knew, um, you know, took, took a risk and knew my value and, and the mark, the timing was right on the market. This was pre.com. They would hire anybody if you knew how to turn on a computer and, oh, really? you know, so I, I often get asked, you know, do you regret not getting your degree? And I'm like, and sometimes the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd, I'd love to have it. Just I, I like accomplishment, yeah. right? Um, but, you know, I, for me, and I don't know that it, it the results, I don't know if I would have had as positive of results because I look at... I got a, uh, a multi-year uh, head start on a lot of my peers that were in college. And while they were racking up debt, I was earning income. I was getting the experience. Yeah. And um, when that first corporate job, um, I went to work for Anheuser-Busch. I was in a management role at 21 years old. And at... at really what was the premier company in St. Louis to work for. Everybody oh. wanted to work for Anheuser-Busch. I mean, that's one of the largest companies on the planet. With Yeah. I mean, yeah. everyone knows those horses. <laughs> yeah, and it was, I mean, it, it was, was an awesome opportunity. And I don't know, had I finished my degree program, if the timing would have been right for me to get that. And I don't think I would have been able to get that kind of role uh with just a, a degree, mm -hmm. because part of of um, part of what led to that was uh, Anheuser Busch did skills assessments, and I'd been working working my tail off as a consultant for I, I had probably 
50 plus different clients. I was seeing all sorts of technical issues on a daily basis. So I got, when, when, um, before Anheuser-Busch, got exposure to a ton. And then I got this opportunity at Anheuser-Busch. Um, I did their skill set uh, test, and, that, and they'd long been doing this for over a decade and scored higher than anyone had ever scored on the test before. And that's what opened those doors up. But the whole reason was because I was getting tons of real-world practical experience putting out fires for these clients all yeah. over mid-Missouri. And we're, we're talking not fancy big-name clients, a lot of them mom-and-pop businesses and things, but just got so much exposure that it really prepared me well for, for that moment. And so part of it was just luck, but I'm, I'm happy to be lucky. And, uh, you know, that set off what, what's a great career. I mean, I feel like that paved the way for me to end up at, in, in my CIO role at Higginbotham. Um, certainly the experience working for a large enterprise like that has helped me um, even today. And, I mean, that was 20 years ago. But a lot of that experience is still relevant today. And, and I, I really value it and, and enjoyed that experience. But That brings me one, back to one of my favorite philosophies you and I chat about. It's, you know, Luck versus hard work. I mean, it, it sounds like you made your own luck. Just go like I loved how you were doing that consulting prior to Google being a thing. I mean, nowadays a lot, a lot of our jobs are made a lot easier because if there's an issue, we can ask the internet first. Yeah. And well, I I will admit there were still. Oh gosh, who was it back there? Um, can't remember if it was Alta Vista groups or. Um, there were a number of uh, online forums, not yeah. not like today, but you know it, the idea of looking online for help yeah. w- that that still was a thing. And uh, that consulting company this will this will date it. So um, th- I I had um, that was right at the beginning of the internet era, mm-hmm. and they had a T one, which is um, one. Uh, basically one and a half megabits, right? Which was, to me, incredible bandwidth, right? <laughs> Compared to my my dial-up modem, having yeah. 1.5 megabits of, of connectivity was was just mind-blowing. How could anything, how could the internet ever be faster than that, <laughs> you know? Now... Why would you need more than that? Yeah, now we we, we turn our nose, you know, we, we look down on 100 meg, internet, you know, and that was one and a half, right? Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I was on the internet and, and, you know, that's the other, the other, I think, secret to success is just using what's available to you. You don't have to know it all. And even if you think you know the answer, Google it anyway, make sure, right? Verify. Can't hurt. Verify. But anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, some of it, I, I, I would say I, I made my own luck. I mean, some of it may have just been dumb luck. I don't know. I, I just, no matter what, I feel fortunate. I mean, those decisions in your 20s, I would argue, you know, when you were quote-unquote young and you were still learning a lot, those are the best decisions of all time because, I mean, so many people I know who got college degrees when I was in college and myself, they're still paying it back. Yeah. And I mean, and the ROI for many industries or many degrees realistically just is not there anymore. For many instances. <laughs> so I think the um, it's right for different people, yeah. right? I, I think um, I don't know that a traditional college education is necessarily right for every 
um, every industry and certainly for every person. I think there's some people that need that structure. They need that growth. I think there's some that don't and can pave their own way. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there. You know, um, when I, I talk about this with people, I, I've got a son. He's, he's, um, he's still in elementary school. But they ask, people ask me, are you going to encourage him to go to college? And I'm going to say, I, I don't know where he's going to be at or what he wants to do. Um, if I think if it's what's going to give him the best advantage in life, I'm absolutely going to encourage him to go to college. It, it's all about doing what can can set you up for long-term success. And I, in retrospect, I know that's what I was doing at the time. I think I made a really bad um, bad choice because I did it just out of kind of necessity. I yeah. left because I wanted to get married. I wanted income, that kind of stuff. I mean, I would like to say I made, you know, I looked at the market and realized my value in the market and projected that that IT was going to continue to take off for the next decade. And that it was, I got lucky there, yeah. right? I, I mean, I made a decision uh, uh, just based on, on current needs. So, um, but... I think that's what the kind of decisions we have to look at is, hey, what, what makes the most sense for, for you as an individual, where the market's going? A- and that's what I'll do with my son. You know, if he wants to be a doctor, yeah, he's going to yeah. go to college. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my wife's an attorney, and schooling was, was very rewarding for her, if nothing else, for the uh, networking opportunities that, that, schooling, that uh, law school developed for you, right? And and where you go to school and law school opens a lot of doors for you. So, you know, there are industries where it's immensely important. And I think yeah. formal training and formal education and extended education, like I, I want educated doctors, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's some things, and technology is one of them, where it's hard for a traditional university to keep um, creating relevant curriculum. Right. It's um, it, that's why I remember being frustrated um, my my freshman year. I took my first programming class and this was ninety five or so um, was in this class. And um, I think it was. Pascal, maybe. And it's not um, which was a dead language already. You know, visual um, visual development environments were were available at this time, but they're teaching me like I I'm in VMS or something, doing Pascal and C and it. You know, I mean, at least it wasn't you know COBOL and Fortran, but it still still was pretty antiquated. And I just remember how is this helping me learn anything, <laughs> right? I mean, this isn't usable. And I think that's one of the tra- challenges with technology in traditional university is that, you know, they've got curriculum that's developed over time and then implemented for years. And and so if your your role is is very operational IT and you have to be current on the latest technology, 
doesn't necessarily. Now you can learn the fundamentals of networking or programming, um, you know, but that doesn't take a, a four years degree. of study, right? So, you know, I, I think it, it depends. And again, but if you're doing uh, data analysis, so data, we are talking about how important data is. Um, there's so much analytics and math. And I do think a lot of that requires extended study. Mm. And I, I think having advanced degrees in data and analytics and statistics is very valuable for, for the data market, right? Uh, it's also why those positions are so highly compensated right now because they're in demand and, and they require a long commitment and education. So, again, it depends on what you want to do. But I do believe that it's a four-year degree isn't right for all roles for all people. I agree. I I don't know. When Man, I, that was a long no, answer I like it, to though. a very it's, simple question. Well, I mean, things are often if more... If you even ask, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, things are more complex than they usually seem. But, like, when I was growing up, though, it was it was almost like a forced copy-paste. Like, you're going to college. Like, my whole classmates, like, the whole public school experience, mills through, you know, elementary through high school, was telling you, you're here to prepare for college. You need a degree to be successful. Uh, that's kind of the bill of sale. I feel like a lot of people in my generation were sold, which, of course, for certain degrees and certain skill sets, yeah. But, I mean, when I look back at what I learned, uh, part of me thinks I just should have started my own business earlier in life. But then again, my, my degree was how I got a job at HPE, and that's how I got into IT. So, I mean, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, well, and... Um college, especially major universities, do, it does create a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. that uh, to be exposed to things that you otherwise might not be. I mean, I wasn't, I was only at University of Missouri for... Sorry about that. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I was only at the University of Missouri for like three semesters, mm -hmm. right? But it wasn't um, uh, in that that three years. I got I joined uh, the Solar Car team and oh, really? helped build um, a com a completely electric vehicle powered only by the sun, right? And it works. That's awesome. It works like traditional EVs today do. Right, a lot of what you see today. In fact, several of my um, teammates on that program, they uh, they went on to work on the EV1, which was the first electric vehicle created by GM. Yeah. So they worked on the EV1 project for GM, but we did things like things that are commonplace. We had regenerative braking, where when you're braking, it would charge the batteries back up, and we we did wheel motors. You know, not not traditional drivetrains with drive tra shafts and transmissions. So what we were building were very simplified versions of a Tesla, right? And only ours were completely solar powered. So we were even building our own, uh, uh, well, we'd say carbon fiber, but they're actually Kevlar bodies. So we made our own bodies and build the molds and bake them and then apply all the solar cells and, had motor, uh, motor controllers and wrote our own software. 
But one of the things that I was exposed to there was all this automotive stuff and seeing automotive and technology combined was, was awesome. But something I'd never seen before is I started to see the machine shop and got exposed to all the mechanical sides of it. And, I mean, we were um, making our own parts, you know, on the lathe or milling things, and, and I just had no exposure to that. In fact, it had me rethinking, okay, was this technology side the way I wanted to go, or do I want to be a mechanical engineer? And um, just that I got a lot of, or it was fascinating to me, and the, the mechanical side of it, and uh, um, it, exciting to, to realize, hey, I, you can innovate in this and, and develop your own stuff and make stuff better. Um, and that, uh, um, that exposure has really helped drive my, a lot of my um, personal passions later in life. So, you know, that was an experience that um, I, I look back on very, very fondly because it, it was neat on so many levels. Um, and that I don't know that I would have gotten that experience had I not started out at a university, right? I, I wouldn't yeah. have been exposed to that. So, you know, again, circling back to the topic we've beaten to death, it's <laughs> hard to say what's right there. Um, but, you know, there are some advantages beyond just landing the right job because that was something that kind of s- helped me set up passions for the rest of my life that I, I still have today around automotive and mechanical and things like that. And ironically enough, now the largest automotive company on the planet is a technical company. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know that they're the largest. They, um, they have the highest valuation. Yes, that, that's, that's another crazy thing about valuations. Like Rivian w- at one point was the highest valued, and they never even built a car at that point because it, a lot of it is speculation R&D, and then you have to catch up with production. That's oh. a very unique experience. Rivian. I, I love their trucks. They look the amazing. Oh, I it Yes, yes. I know a lot of my friends have put deposits on it, partially just on that fun fact where the truck will actually do like a 180 in one spot. Just that one fun novelty, like sold it to a lot of my friends when they saw like the YouTube ad for it. Yeah. Like that. I mean, it really is going back to Elon Musk's philosophy of like, make, have fun and make a fun product. You're going to get people's attention. Yeah. I mean, and now the Teslas, those things are so fast. The Plaid, I mean, it's just astonishing. Although I still, in old school, I prefer gas and a stick shift, which I'll be the last one to drive one probably. But, <laughs> you know, I I want to be a driving purist and say that, but I'm I'm also a technologist. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and I appreciate the fact that that technology can make me better, right? And uh, I don't want, and quite honestly, getting around day to day, I would love nothing more than if my car would drive me to work every day Mm -hmm. because driving to work is not fun. You know, there are a lot, you can have fun in a car, but getting from point A to point B isn't how you have fun in a car. Well, especially if you're doing bumper to bumper traffic. Oh, yeah. Although I would argue... You can't text and drive when you're driving a stick shift bumper to bumper, and you're going, you're only going ten feet every two seconds or whatever. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, what? A, I don't want to text and drive. Well, no, I that's, wanna, that's why you can't, though. Yeah, well, 
No, but I want to text during <laughs> oh, that time, right? Yeah. I want to use that time. So how about the car drives for, for me you. so yeah. I can text or get my work done, right? I mean, um, that's... It's close. Well, and, you know, our the work-life dynamic has changed and evolved so much the last couple of years through COVID and everything. And it, we're right. going through this at Higginbotham. We were a company that... Um, very traditional, uh, and almost everybody was in the office. Then COVID shifted a lot of that, and now we're we're very much a, um, a hybrid working company with most people spending at least some time every week working from home or elsewhere. Um, you know, I personally have taken advantage of that and and traveled some while still working, and it, it's been great. But it it's really made you think about, okay, where does work and personal life begin and end? Because I can work anywhere um, and work can get a hold of me anywhere and everywhere now. So where does it all begin and end? And, um, and so that has, has me thinking about things like, well, when I do go to the office, and what a waste of time that drive is. <laughs> if my car could drive for me and I could use that, hey, that's, that's more free time I have elsewhere. And, and I think finding those new ways to build balance or, or even continue to produce as much for, for our employers who pay us, everybody likes to hate, hate work, but <laughs> I mean, we're all dependent on it and, yeah. and, um, you know, we appreciate our paycheck and, you know, I just don't want to work for nothing. Right. right. So I want to do an appropriate amount of work for what I'm getting paid. And I think that's what I expect from my employees. And so if we can figure out ways to, to use our time better um, and more effectively, well, the, the net profit is more free time and, and ways to, to enjoy our, our money that we earned or go participate in that economy or, or just go out and explore the world. Right. And so I love the idea of self-driving cars, and um, and that's somewhat ironic coming from me because I've spent lots of time um, <laughs> learning how to drive cars better. I uh, um, I one of my uh, um, other responsibilities is I, I'm currently uh, the chief driving instructor for uh, the uh, Texas region of the National Autosport Association. Uh, also called NASA, but that confuses people with the space agency. It, it still impresses but my parents when I tell them I'm a member of NASA, though. Yes, you are. <laughs> and yeah, you've and you've learned and you've invested in learning how to drive. But, you know, that that's a whole different kind. We're we're talking about performance driving. Yeah. Right. And uh, um, it, it's a whole different thing. And it really changes. You know, people say, oh, I love driving, you know, driving my car or the back roads and all that once you start experiencing a, a vehicle and what it's capable of in a, a closed circuit environment, a racetrack, you, you everything else starts to get boring. And so yeah. I don't <laughs> want to give up. I don't want a car to drive me around a racetrack. Yeah, I, I want to <laughs> drive there. I just don't want to drive to work every day because that's that's boring and poor, pointless. If I, you know, potentially I could use that time to free up more time or track to time. drive myself. Yeah. yeah, at the racetrack. Yeah. That's the key. I mean, it's just in every company, it's working, you know, hours upon hours, 
Self-driving is right around the corner. You already have the pseudo augmented self-driving where it'll do certain things. And then, you know, certain things they're not legally supposed to say are, but it could kind of do it. Mm -hmm. So I know GM is rolling out theirs even further because they have, they're doing their program where they're gathering all the analytics on the actual roads, putting that into their system. And it'll be interesting to see who is the first truly self-driving car company to come to market everyone has their pseudo demo you know kind of but i mean that's going to be that and battery technology are going to be two of the most important and profitable technology to come in the next five ten years i think it's going to just transform everything because you can you can accomplish if you have a 40 minute trip to get to the office all of a sudden that's two more hours a day where you can get more productivity answering emails just doing your job on the road yeah it's so I think that um, self-driving vehicles are important for the continued um, success of of the United States in general, yeah. and that that sounds weird, but part of that has to do with I'm we we're a, a country built around the automobile. Yeah. It's it's been you know the automobile. Um, we are very successful in this country. We have some of the largest auto manufacturers there are, you know, based here. And um, it and it came um, at an important point, or the automobile became important uh, in a uh, important time in in this country's development, which really wasn't that long ago, right? Yeah. But. Um, and, and so we embrace that, right? And we've we built our infrastructure around the automobile. the The challenge is that that infrastructure hasn't kept up, right? Our everybody complains about our roads, and we don't. We're not a country that embraces mass transit. And so we look at, well, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to make it work? And um, and a lot of people will say, well, we need more mass transit, but it, it's really hard to establish that after the fact. Plus, you have complications with mass tran uh, transit, not only cultural complications, but things like like trains. You have um, you need right away to do that, and, and it can take forever and be extremely costly because we didn't invest in building that out when land was cheap. Yeah. Plus, we're a huge company country with... with um, lots of distance in between um, things. So it, it makes it difficult. So, you know, one of the ways we can get better and more efficient at using the existing infrastructure is if, if we get better at navigating it and driving it smarter and with fewer incidents and slowdowns. And I do think um, autonomous driving will, will help in a lot of those ways and, and help us extend um, the life of our infrastructure without as much investment, which I think ultimately makes us a more successful country and keeps us being successful. So, you know, that's you know, the alternative. I, I don't know. I mean, the alternative is we, we do what, what we were before COVID, and that is we just kept moving into denser and denser areas. Yeah. And, um, but even that still doesn't um, remove the need for a commute and things like that. In fact, it, it, in most cities, it was pretty common to have an hour commute. 
Um, and so, you know, I think that autonomous driving thing, giving time back to people, make that whole thing easier, solve our infrastructure issues, that all sounds pretty positive. So it's taken me a long time to come to this this conclusion because at first I'm like, no, nobody's taking my driving away from me. I want my, <laughs> my you car. know, my yeah. manual transmission. Don't bother me with that those yeah. anti-lock brake stuff. Just <laughs> I want a car and I want it to stop when I say it's going to stop and go when I say I want to go. But, you know, I, I don't know. My opinions changed a little bit. Part of that's because I have a driving outlet. Um, yeah. But part of that's because I, I think we need that to continue to be successful to get you know, connect people that need labor with laborers right. and, and get them to where they need to go and those kinds of things. And I mean, just like automotive accidents, just like IT, the biggest error, the human error. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's it's the biggest flaw in the system we yeah. have at, at any company is is all those pesky humans. You ever, hear, you ever hear the joke about the CISO talking to the CEO about security? No. He goes, hey, I got I got an idea. I could promise I could fix all of our security. Just just have to get rid of all the users. <laughs> that would fix a lot of problems. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except, you know, then nobody's around to sell this stuff. That's true. So, the robots yeah. will help. The chatbots. Yeah. Those, yeah. That technology's come so far. It's almost at the point where you can't tell if it's a person or not. It's it's astonishingly impressive. It is. It's scary. It <laughs> is. Yeah, I think there's um I still think there's there's value in people um but I do think that um when it comes to a lot of interactions um there those AI technologies can be very helpful in like um establishing some some base things when you're routing a call um, and sometimes with better accuracy than a human can because those frontline call center people are a little apathetic about their jobs a lot of times yeah. and so the AI will do a better potentially do a better job of determining what what a person is is contacting you for what their sentiment is you know are they angry are they you know excited are they frustrated you know so you can have that kind of preparation and get that kind of data to the person that's receiving the call. And hopefully you're connecting that customer with the resource that can resolve the issue. Um, you know, so those kinds of things, the chat bots or, or even some of the, the um, voice prompted AI assistants and things like that, they do a great job. Um, where they're not, where you can't really depend on them is to make decisions or draw conclusions, right? They're just trying to match data points. And, you know, sometimes you, you get a feeling on how little they understand. Um, when, when you get a, uh, one of the AI chat assistants that, you, you know, why are you calling today? Or why are you contacting us? And you say, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, uh, I need to schedule an oil change. And then, you know, then they're like, well, have you seen these, these helpful articles? And, and <laughs> they're, th you know, they send you knowledge base articles about how to, um, how to reset the tire pressure on your car or something <laughs> and not, n and I'm calling to schedule an oil change. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, sometimes they miss the mark, but they are getting 
uh, a lot better. And uh, um, they, they're good at, and for the most part, not in the example I made, but in, for the most part, drawing those data relationships, right? That's what AI is really good at, is defining relationships right now. Oh, yeah. Then out of curiosity, how did you first get into racing? Um, so, uh, I've always kind of been into cars. I, I liked them, but didn't have a lot of opportunity as a kid, mm. right? Um, my dad wasn't a car guy. We didn't have nice cars. Um, you know, uh, but I had some friends that were into it, right? And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but then I went off to, to college and for a little bit got exposure to some uh to the Seoul formula sae i wasn't on that team but it's where they build little race cars and and you know i thought huh that's really interesting and i i really enjoyed it but then real world i had to start working right yep. and, I, and i got married and everything but i got a little bit of success and uh i had always wanted um i'd always wanted a uh, a BMW. And that goes back to when I was, um, uh, a little, not a little kid, but younger kid in, in the eighties, um, had this book with like exotic cars Yep. and I'm flipping through it. And there was this brick of a car in there. It was red, a convertible. And I'm like, why is this in here? And it was, uh, a, a BMW E30, which is the quintessential BMW, the yes. 80s 3 Series. It was like the yuppie car, but it was also the, it, it, that was when the ultimate driving machine tagline was developed and for BMW. Which is and that's insane. I just read a, uh, one of the books about BMW. Uh -huh. That is a, the longest ever marketing campaign for automotive history to be used. I'm still not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's as relevant as it once was, but that's another story. The, um, um, but th this car didn't look, it looked a little out of place. I mean, this boxy three series sedan thing, um, and this one was a convertible, but in with, uh, I think there was a, you know, whatever, Ferrari of, of that vintage was and Lamborghini Countach, uh, yeah. um, all that, that, you know, those kind of cars and then this. And, but I'm looking at the specs and it's not that far off from these supercars and yeah. performance specs. And I, there was something about me that just, that resonated. It's like a car, this is a performance car that looks like an everyday car. Sleeper. And I thought, that's really cool. And plus, I grew up in rural Missouri. I never, we didn't have German cars right. in that part of the country. And so it still seemed exotic to me, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I could tell from price tags, it was more achievable, yeah. right? So got older, started to find some success. We bought a used BMW, um, and that was great. It was 3 Series, not that E30. I actually right. bought... Later in life, I bought that exact car that I saw in that book. That's awesome. Red no with a black top with a beige interior. You made the dream. I bought that exact car, but that was cool. But um, decided to buy um, a 
BMW performance car. It was uh, a 2002 BMW M Coupe. And this was a car, this is a weird car that a lot of people, unless you're a, a BMW enthusiast, probably don't know exists. So it's um, like the Z3, which um, is is kind of like the Miata that BMW made, right. a little convertible. But this one wasn't a convertible. It was a two-seater still, but it had a hatchback, like station wagon thing. And it was very, very odd. But it, So it had a fixed roof, it had a hatchback, but only two seats, um, and a big, long front end. And in profile, it looks like... Um, like an oversized clown shoe. And that's what they call these cars is a clown shoe. <laughs> and I bought this thing and it was so cool. It was one of, of 300 they made for no North America, which makes it really, I, 306 was it I, worldwide. It was just over 600 cars worldwide. How do you find it? Um, I found it. Somebody had traded it in at a car max. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh! So I, you know, I got it, and it somebody pr- traded it in DC, had it transferred here to DFW, bought it. They Carmax didn't know what they had, and I bought it, and it was only a couple years old at this time. And initially, these cars didn't sell well because um, what's unique about the the BMW M Coupe or the Clown Shoe is it was a car that that never really should have been built. It was something that some engineers in Germany, I mean, the story goes that they're like um, sitting around drinking beer and they're like, oh, those Porsche guys, we've got to do something to beat them. And so they started designing a car um, that could go beat the 911. And they they knew that they'd never get the budget to design one from the ground up. So they started, they're like, what do we have? And they started with the Z3, and and basically the design of the M Coupe used somewhere in the neighborhood of of eighty five percent parts from that BMW already had in their catalog. They had to make very little, and so they developed this, and they developed a prototype, and somehow got the executives to sign off on this thing, but they never advertised it. They never had any marketing behind it, really? and um, they. They wanted to position it below the the BMW M3, so they they kept the price point down on it, and all these things. And but when it was built, um, finally built, they took it to the uh, Nurburgring, mm-hmm. and it did outperform the 911 of the time. It it set um, faster laps around the ring than a 911. So they they accomplished what they wanted to uh, out of you know, parts from the parts bin, right? And built this car. And so they sold it and it didn't sell well because they didn't market it to anybody, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Most people, and it didn't quite look like a normal BMW. Um, And so when I bought mine, it wasn't very collectible. Today they're highly collectible, but I got this thing and it was a monster of a car. Um, And my problem was driving it around Dallas. I didn't enjoy it. Um, because it was just too much car for sitting in traffic every day. And that's when my wife found um, out about track days. I didn't know such things existed. I didn't know what a road course was or that racing existed. 
uh, on a road course. I just knew drag racing, yeah. right? So my wife signs me up for one of these track days, and I find out about it, and I just love the concept. And then I realize, hey, they race on these racetracks and thought, wouldn't that be awesome? And so I went and did it. And before I ever did my first one, um, you know, I, I decided this is something I want to do. I, I was born to do this. My actual experience was much different. I was terrible as a driver on the racetrack. And in fact, was told that I should find a different ho- hobby. Really? But I, yeah, but I was, I'm, I'm, I get stubborn, yeah. right? And I set my mind to something, I do it. And so I just kept doing it. I did lots of events and lots of events, got lots of experience and finally got connected with an instructor who was a, uh, uh, also a racer and it just clicked for me and, uh, and, and then really took off. But, um, it was, yeah. So the real reason I got involved with racing, it's all my wife's fault, <laughs> which is fantastic <laughs> because now it, it's hard for her to complain about what I spend on, yeah. on doing, um, doing racing. Um, because she kind of started this. Your idea, not mine. Yeah, <laughs> and it is an expensive hobby. It's yeah. it's awesome. I mean, it's so much fun. It it lets me dive into that mechanical stuff that I found um, when I was working on the solo car team that I really enjoy. Yeah. But anymore, there's so much technology involved in it as well. I mean, we, we put so much data in our, our race cars. E- even at an amateur level, we're streaming telemetry about – um, you know, the states of, of the engine, the tires. I mean, we, we're getting um, a, a spread of temperatures across the surface of the tire from all four tires in real time back in the pits. We're, you know, monitoring um, pressures and temperatures. And, and I mean, it's how much steering angle the driver's putting in and how they're using uh, how much pressure on the brake pedal and how much throttle and you know, and through all this, we can see not only how the vehicle's performing, but how the driver's performing. And we're doing all this analysis in real time. And then after the fact, doing data comparisons between uh, between our drivers, trying to determine where we can either improve the car or improve the driver. And, you know, it's very data-driven now, but which kind of brings it all together yeah. for <laughs> me, which makes it makes it a lot of fun. But I just wish it was a more affordable hobby. I mean, for me, it uh, it, it spawned a whole nother business um, just over, I guess it was over a decade ago, I opened um, Clown Shoe Motorsports. Maybe after the car. Um, yeah, <laughs> named for, for the car that started it all. Um, and it was a BMW performance shop and really started that to help supplement, um, bring in some supplemental income mm-hmm. to support all this racing stuff. And uh, that's been a great endeavor. I've made so many friends through that and business contacts. And well, part of why I'm at Higginbotham today, because it was through Clown Shoe that I, I met um, Ross, who helped get me in the door at Higginbotham. And so, you know, racing is, it continues to be a passion of mine, love doing it, don't get to do it quite as much as I'd like to um, now, but still very, very active, Um, also more active on the 
event and organization side that I used to be. I helped manage and train drivers and and put on events and those kinds of things as well. But, um, yeah, just a fantastic sport. So much fun. And you and Andy have done a great job with the program. Like, just, again, just from my experience, I've always had fun, you know, driving. I've only ever owned stick shifts. I love them. And I remember the first time we were on track, you were telling me about the classes, and I was just, I was really worried because I'm like, the only experience I had in my life about racing was TV and Hollywood, just which is like oil and water with facts. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought, oh, no, this is dangerous. And then so I got with you guys. It was the most fun I've ever had. And especially in HPDE um, 1 and 2, I love having the driver right next to me. So I was scared to death. But when you when you were in the, in the passenger seat telling me exactly what to do at every given moment, I felt comfortable and exhilarating. It's so, so much fun. You're, you're dropping a bunch of acronyms. That's true. Right now. Too so many. <laughs> I'm going to back up. So, uh, uh, Topping mentioned Andy. Uh, Andy Pettit, who is one of my best friends, he's also been my business partner in Clown Shoe Motorsports, and now is my, my partner in crime with uh, NASA Texas, helping me put on our driver development program. And we do, um, as part of NASA, is a a group of automotive enthusiasts. Um, They have multiple programs that include racing, driver training, autocross, all sorts of different events. But um, Andy and I are involved with their high-performance driving experience or education program, HPDE. And we... It's a program where if you've never been on track and Topping's yeah. done this, he <laughs> his first time ever on track was with us at our program. He he brought his his hot hatch yeah. out, and uh, we put an instructor in with him and taught him um, or started to teach him how to get the most out of his car and get around the racetrack and and really have have uh, um, more fun than anybody should be able to have um in, in our cars and so that's the program that I'm, that that he's speaking of and and what i'm doing with with nasa now is about developing drivers and you can start out with zero experience and progress you know at whatever pace you you want to progress you know different people i was a slow learner it took me a while to finally advance and then i ramped up um we we build the program you know, we advance you based on your capabilities, not on how many events you've done or how few you've done, you know, many or few. Um, and there are like four stages. And each one has increasing expectations and and your skills go with different levels. But it, it's a great program. And um, you can go from there and go in and go get your race license, apply, and there's a simple school NASA has to get your race license and start racing. Or many of our drivers just stay doing the, um, just for personal enjoyment, stay in the HPDE program and keep coming out and driving with us. And it, it's the kind of thing that just always stays challenging. I mean, I know guys that have been coming and doing, you know, HPDE or racing for decades i i've been doing it 15 years now and uh, can't imagine a day when i i wouldn't enjoy going to the racetrack oh it's so much fun and yeah. it's a lot more controlled than people think it's it's a lot easier to get into than people think because i mean especially for the i think you said like levels one and two is very common to people use their street car for the actual track 
Like you don't need to have a Ferrari or, you know, something crazy to get into racing. Right. Right. You can have, have any, I've had a, um, I don't recommend you bring it out, but I have had a minivan on <laughs> yeah. track before, <laughs> you know, not the most capable vehicle, but it got me around and it was still fun. But uh, yeah, you don't need anything fancy. You can start, you know, um, start, uh, in just about anything. I mean, uh, the Wayne's Civic, World. an Accord. Uh, the Wayne's you know, World Fiendry. car? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's actually one of those that runs around so um, frequently here in the area. So it's, um, yeah, you don't need anything. But you meet a lot of good people, too. Right. I mean, and a surprising amount of, of IT people. Right. I mean, I know um, uh, got introduced to the, the CISO of, AWS through racing. He's a road racer. Um, the the owner of CrowdStrike is huge into right. racing. Has developed developed himself. a yeah yeah George. yeah <laughs> yeah. George has has uh, a whole program, um, and he does a great job introducing people to it. They do CrowdStrike does a really cool program where they bring executives out to the racetrack on their race weekends and and expose them to road course and and uh, um, CrowdStrike is a sponsor of the series, as well as um, George Drives, and they have their, their own sponsored cars, um, and they partner with AWS at a lot of those races. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's neat. But there's a ton of overlap between technology and IT. I think um, the whatever in our brain makes us excited about IT must be the same stuff that gets us excited about cars because um, I've met so many people in technology that are also into to, to cars and racing and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of overlap, but like I said, from a networking perspective, it's great because there's just so many people that, um, that you get the opportunity to meet. And it's one of the fun thing about a hobby like this is people are really approachable, right? You oh can yeah. where, you know, you might not, if, if you're out on a Saturday night and you see, you know, a, a guy walk into his Ferrari, you, you're not going to approach him. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it'd be weird if you just come up to him at a parking lot, right? <laughs> but at a racetrack, I mean, people welcome that, yeah. right? They want to talk about their car. They're there because they love it and they, they, they love talking about it and sharing it with people. And so everyone's approachable. And so you, you can look at all these cars and talk to people about it. And, you know, some of my best friends I, I've, I have have all been made through racetrack. Um, oh, another example of overlap, uh, a guy that helped me build my very first race car back in St. Louis. I, my first car was a Porsche 944. Um, it was that's with, with it controversially that's with the engine in front, right? Yes, and yes. A V8 and it was water cooled, yeah. which all <laughs> Porsches are water cooled now. But when they back then, well, and the they did the 928 had the V8. The oh, really? 944 was a four cylinder. Really, and at the time, it was the largest four cylinder ever produced uh, from a displacement yeah. perspective. Is a two and a half liter four cylinder, and then the oh. 944. S, um, uh, or excuse me, the 944 Turbo used that same four-cylinder with a turbo. Now, that four-cylinder, now here's where you thought it was a V8. That's half of the 
the 928s V8. So this was a 2.5-liter really? four-cylinder. Yeah. The 928 had a 5-liter V8. Oh. And it, so it was literally two of these four-cylinders together. Or actually, when they made the four-cylinder, they split the V8 in half. <laughs> really? And so it had the same bore and stroke and used the same pistons yeah. as the V8. Um, but it was basically half of the V8 they used in the 928. They put in the 944, which was the, the poor man's Porsche of yeah. the 80s. Um, it was actually a car that was initially designed for out. Uh, no, not Audi. Audi. Vol Volkswagen? Maybe it was Volkswagen as a sports car. They had a couple and of then um, yeah, and, and then Audi bought it, and and they could never get traction in the 70s. And so Porsche was like, fine, we need a cheap sports car. The gas crisis was going on. This was in the late 70s, and it yeah. debuted as the, the 924 in the 70s. And then in the 80s, they, they did some updates, and that was actually with an Audi motor, um, the, 924, the Porsche 924 in the 70s. Um, was a Porsche-engineered body with an Audi motor, and it made no horsepower. Like <laughs> yeah. Breaking 80 miles an hour was tough in this thing. So in the 80s, they redesigned it, they made it wider and more aggressive, and they put a Porsche-designed motor, which was the, the four-cylinder, the half of the, the V8 from the 928. Um, today, the 944 is... Um, well, it became later the Boxster, oh, and the yep. Cayman is kind of the successor, and now it's the 7, I, I forget my numbers. Um, 7 Series? No, it's 718, or I forget oh, the yeah. model designation for what the, the Boxster and Cayman's become today. But, um, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the lineage on that. But anyway, I started on that, so and I was going. So why did you start? Because there's, there's a lot of cars out there. What made you choose that one it car It was popular. Um, it was a popular, it was the most affordable way for me to, to do, to race in a German car. Really? 44, I paid like two grand for the car. That's um, it. And then built it in a race car. Um, and there were a bunch of people racing them in the Midwest where I was. And so that's part of it is I wanted to have people to race with mm -hmm. and have fun. And it was a one model series. So everybody was racing the same 944 and so it was more about it was less about the car and more about how you were as a driver but um when i was building that i put out a message on the bmw forum because i was a bmw guy even mm -hmm. though this was a porsche and i was like hey anybody want to help me build a car mm -hmm. and this guy i didn't know responded on this forum and said yeah, I'll, I'll help you out. I just got back. He had been in Peace Corps in Africa. Oh, wow. Just got back. And so we started working. And we, we spent hundreds of hours together working on this Porsche and became really good friends. Um, later, um, I move, we moved to Dallas, whatever. Um, my wife and I were working on a business and had an opportunity to hire a director of IT this guy that I met helping me build this Porsche in St. Louis, we called him and offered him this role because we needed someone fast and reliable that we knew well for this business we were building. And he relocated to here. His name's Rob Phelan. He works for EY now. He's oh yeah, global director of 
e-discovery or something and he t- he for them. He takes some pictures, right? Yeah, and yeah, he, they he's look also great. a motorsport f- photographer. Yeah. But, you know, he there that was, again, how um, he got the opportunity. That was his first director-level IT position. In fact, he and I had never worked professionally. We knew each We were car guys. Yeah. But I knew he was in IT, and I knew what kind of person he was. And so when we were personally building this business and needed someone we could trust, um, you know, I – I thought of him and gave him the opportunity and, and helped his career. But again, this is where, you know, it all comes together. Yeah. Networking cars, all of it, it all kind of comes together full circle. So I felt like, I feel like we've covered a lot of grounds. I'm not sure we actually talked about anything. I was going to say my aviation goes so far. There's so many good topics. (laughs) We're definitely going to have to have you coming on again sometime though. I'd love that. I I always enjoy visiting with you, especially because you and I have so many common interests. It's always fun talking. Oh yeah, can't cannot wait. When's the new next traffic session? Uh, out of curiosity, is that September? Or uh, no, there's a Halloween one. I thought. Yeah, Halloween? I don't think with NASA Texas, our next event is October. That's right. Um, yeah, I think it is Halloween weekend. Um, that's here local in DFW. That Eagle Canyon, hopefully. I can't remember. It might be Crescent. I can't well, remember. That was good too, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, um, yeah. Great event and and always uh, welcome more students there. So perfect. Thanks for the show, bud. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks, BJ. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget to click like, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anyone. Thanks for listening. Y'all stay safe. Have a great day. Talks.